We are in chapter 13 of the Gospel according to, to John. What we're looking at here and what we've been looking at now for a number of chapters are events that took place during the Last Supper. We talked about this last week in... John's gospel is really unique in many ways. One of the things about John's gospel that's different than the others, it doesn't have near as many events and et cetera in it as you find with the other gospels. But what, what John does is he gives us a whole lot more details in regard to particular events than you're going to find anywhere else in Scripture. And so he's doing this in uh, chapter 13, which focuses on what we call the Last Supper. And as we began last week, we studied the passage, the part, the beginning of the passage where it talks about Jesus humbling himself and washing the disciples' feet and setting an example for us to follow after him. And by the way, the bushes look really good. We appreciate that very much. Uh, but we understand this, that, uh, that a lot of chapter 13 encompasses the betrayal of Judas Iscariot when it comes to Christ Jesus. And I would challenge us with this idea as we begin this morning, that this is the, the, this is the betrayal of betrayals, the betrayal of all time, the betrayal that even unbelievers have heard something about. I would, I would imagine the vast majority of people who've never read Scripture, never been to church much or whatever, that they know something of betrayal. And one of the people that comes to mind when they think about it is Judas Iscariot, who so many people would consider to be the, you know, the, the betrayer of all betrayers. But join me this morning, if you would, and we're going to read in chapter 13. Uh, Verses 21 uh, to the end of the chapter. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. And we're assuming that this is John, okay? So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I uh, will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are doing, or what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, one, now no one at the table knew what he, why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I, I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Betrayal. If you're familiar with Scripture, you know that the Scriptures are full of betrayal. This is not the only example of it you find in the Bible. You know, it may be the one that people immediately go to when you think about this sort of thing. It's all over the place. I mean, how would you describe what took place with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden without entering into the idea that it was this mass betrayal of the God who had created them? You think about Cain murdering his brother Abel, betrayal of, the, of one of the worst kinds that we can, can attack other people through. Think about Israel wandering in the wilderness. Think about David and his affair with Bathsheba. Think about Israel as God's chosen people. Think about Judas. More importantly of all, think about yourself. See, for most of us, we would say that Judas is, in essence, the standard of what betrayal of the worst sort looks like. But what I want to remind us of more than anything else this morning, that all of us are betrayers. You know that this business that mankind finds itself in, this fallenness into sin, is the worst and the grossest betrayal of, that is, of God that has ever taken place. And as long as we allow it to continue to rule and dominate our lives, What can we say? How many times in your life have you thought about some event or some, some action that some person has done and you thought you might have even said it? I could never do that. I could never do something like that. How could someone be so bad? How could someone be so wicked? How could be someone be so evil? Very often, I'm sure that people, when they read these passages, they wonder how it is that these people, these men that were so close to Jesus, could possibly do what they did and they may be so arrogant to believe that if they had been there things would have been otherwise you see the roots of betrayal run deep within the human heart and soul and spirit we have all betrayed the God who made us Sin itself, every sin, is an act of betrayal.
everyone. No exception. It's funny how, you know, as you, you grow in your Christian faith, I hope that's what it is, that you begin to see things that were right in front of you for a very long time and you've never really taken notice of it. It's something that really has, has fallen upon my heart and my mind and my spirit of late is just this, is this understanding that, you know, very often we think that when other people sin, it is, you know, non-believers sin, that it's really, really bad and horrible and, you know, and this, that, and the other. Uh, but reality is we understand that they are still in the darkness. They haven't, they haven't had the renewal. They haven't had the enlightenment, etc. that you and I have had. So there's a sense in which I want to challenge us with this, this this morning. I want you to think about this, not just this morning, but through this week. Because we very often have this tendency to belittle our own sin. We have this ability to, to explain it away and etc. But I want to say this to us this morning. There's a sense, there has to be a sense, in which when you and I sin, it grieves God's heart far more than when an unbeliever does it. In other words, there's a sense in which in the eyes of God, our sin is worse than the sins of the unbelieving. The fact of the matter is Judas was the perfect representative of all of mankind. He was a purpose, perfect representative of you and of me. You and I are far more like him than we, can, we even want to consider the possibility of. There's a sense in which the heart that f from which this betrayal flowed forth is the same heart that we have. And we understand that this was not the first time that Judas had betrayed Jesus and the other disciples, that he made a habit of doing it. He was entrusted with their money bag. You know, when people made offerings, you know, to help support, and Jesus was... We, we, we've said this before, he was one of those traveling preachers, and, and they were utterly and absolutely dependent upon people giving them gifts to keep them on the road and to put food in their belly and a place to sleep and that sort of thing. But Judas had been given responsibility of oversight of the money back, paying the bills and etc., it turns out that he saw the money bag as a benefit to himself because he regularly took money and he stole from Jesus and the other 11 on a regular basis. Betrayal. The whole time he thought he was doing it without Jesus or anybody knowing about it, but Jesus knew exactly what was going on all along. I want to remind us of something this morning. I don't think that, that we've really taken hold of this, and that is that, that everything that we have, everything that we have, is actually God's. All of it. Every bit of it. It's his stuff that he's entrusted to you and I. Yes, to use to our benefit. There's no doubt about that. But there's something that it's given to us 
with a greater purpose of, and that is to glorify God, to honor and glorify God in all that we do. I think very often people begrudgingly give money to the work of the ministry. Don't be that way. We need to look upon it as a privilege that God has given us this privilege of contributing in lots of ways to the advancement of the gospel, the advancement of the ministry of the church into this world. It's a privilege for us to be able to give our gifts to God, not a burden, not something that holds us back, but truly a blessing from God. And if you don't understand that, then you're doing it all from the wrong perspective. Let me tell you something. Do you think God really needs your money? No. But I tell you what God wants more than anything else is your whole heart. Absolutely. I love the way that we've done finances here at the church. I just love it. We're a debt-free ministry. We always have been. I had ministers telling me, dear friends of mine, that your ministry will fail if you're not willing to borrow money. You will never build a building. You will never be able to do this, that, or the other unless you're willing to borrow money from the secular world to do that. You need to understand that that our approach to finances here is, is exceptional. It's not the norm by any stretch of the imagination that we can stand here today and say we are debt-free, we have always been debt-free, we have built buildings, we have supported the ministry, we've supported missionaries, etc., 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 over the years without ever even having a conversation about borrowing money. It hasn't even entered into the conversations in the in leadership. God has truly blessed us in this, and I don't doubt that for one minute. Now let me just tell you something. I'm about to do something that is a cardinal rule of don't do preaching. (laughs) Something you learn very often on. I'm sure that Mike's already heard it one or two times and this, that, and the other. And that is this. And that is you never use yourself as a sermon illustration. You always look around and you find other people. Don't ever talk about anything that you've done or, you know, your pastor or whatever. But I just want to say this to you. I'm going, to do, I'm going to break that cardinal rule this morning because I want you to understand something. I want you to understand the real center that Keith really is and where he came from. I lived a completely different life before I met Lori. You know, my transformation began to take place when I met her. I came to faith not too long after that. But, you know, so I had a previous life. And in that previous life, I, had an, I was married before, and I had an adulterous affair. And it was wrong. Now, I could tell you some things that might give you a little bit of a different perspective on it, and that is I had every reason to believe that she had actually had one before. 
makes it not sound quite so bad. But let me tell you, I carried a lot of guilt around for a long time as a result of it. I mean, I could not believe it, that I would do such a thing. I would not, couldn't believe that I could, could do such a thing. But along came Lori and then Jesus right on her tail. And I'm not going to stand here today and tell you it's an impossibility that I would ever do something like that again. But I would hope that God would strike me down before I did. And the reason I tell you this is so you understand that I'm not just a sinner. I'm a dirty, rotten, nasty, bad sinner. It's only saved by the grace of God just like you are. But one of the words that would be used to describe the kind of sin that I was guilty of was, was betrayal. Absolute, complete, total betrayal. There's a sin in the sense in which every sin fits into that category that when we sin, we are betraying God's love and trust for us. You understand that's one of the reasons why I, I hold so dearly to the concept of grace because I desperately need grace. Without grace, there is no salvation for me. At all. And I want to say to us this morning, very often we have the idea that, you, have you, how many times have you ever said, I would never do that or I could never do that? Let me tell you something. Be very careful because God might just let you see what you are fully capable of doing. The only thing that keeps you and I from committing the grossest sins conceivable is the restraint of the Spirit of God. We look upon Judas and we think this is the most despicable thing that could possibly be imagined. The fact of the matter is, is we should see a reflection of ourselves in this person. One of the reasons why we must, we have to absolutely and completely understand that we are saved by grace and grace only. Judas got what Judas deserved. We don't. You see, God did not grant grace to Judas by his own reasons and his own purposes, but he does that for us. He gives us grace. Jesus gives uh, the disciples a sure sign of the boundaries of the brethren of the church Just as I have loved you, 
you also are to love one another. This is one of the very defining facts or uh, particulars of the church, and that is that Christians love each other. Francis Schaeffer called this the mark of the Christian. In other words, if you don't love other believers, there's good reason to understand that you're not a believer yourself. That there is a bond of love between, between believer and, 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 and believer that is beyond the kind of love that is even possible in this world apart from it. Where there is no love for the brethren, neither is there the love of Christ, and therefore there are no Christians. This is a sign. Maybe a sign for us that we, when we, we see other people you know, loving as we love and that sort of thing, then they're very much welcomed in. But one of the things I would challenge us with the idea that this is a sign, a symbol of the presence of Christ for the world to see. That the world would be able to see that Christians really are different than other people in a lot of ways. But one of the most particular and specific ways is this, is they, they seemingly have this very great love for each other that the world can't even understand. This is what, one of the things that makes the church distinct from all of the other organizations in the world is this is love for Christ and love in and through Christ that holds the whole thing together. It is the binding tendon of the church. It's a message that is very different than the message of the world today. The world today encourages people over and over again to be self-lovers. To believe that they are the most important thing that has ever existed. That, and only, the only good things that happen in the world are things that are good that happen to them. It's the very heart and soul of today's woke culture. It's all about you. It's all about you loving yourself. We are hosting a Christians United for Christ worship service in December. We have done this in the past. It's been some years since we've done it. I used to be really, really involved, and in I was a president of the Ministerial Association in Dunellen for years. Uh, I also was very actively involved in Christians United for years. And let me just tell you something. I distanced myself from it to some degree somewhere along the way because I got tired of dealing with Christians in a manner that was very much like the world. But what I am hoping is that when our brothers and sisters come here on that night that they're going to find a body of believers here 
that's characterized by a great love for God and a great love for each other, but at the same time, a great love for other people that are part of this church that, that are outside the walls of this building. You understand that it's the heart and soul of Christians united. It's, it's brothers and sisters getting together who disagree with one another when it comes to some things. But being able to love one another with a really deep and endearing love that goes beyond their own personal thoughts and beliefs and preferences when it comes to particular things. Anybody that's ever spent any time on the mission field, they've seen this expressed in ways you probably aren't going to see it expressed too much here in the United States. For instance, when we went to Uganda years and years and years ago, one of the things that really stood out for me was how closely connected all the missionaries in that area were with each other. Regardless of denomination, regardless of church affiliation, regardless of this, regardless of that, very often their very dearest and closest friends were people, Christians, Americans. You're talking about American mission. They were Americans that were of Baptist backgrounds. But in that particular circumstance, they're put in a position where they really are a lot more dependent upon one another than you're going to find in normal context. And so you just see this real intense love that, that Baptist missionaries and Presbyterian missionaries and even Roman Catholic missionaries have for each other. Very obvious. Peter, impetuous Peter, you've known people like this, maybe you're a person like that where very often you say things without really thinking about what you're, gonna, what you're saying, <laughs> without thinking through the possible misunderstandings and ramifications and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Peter is impetuous. You see that all through the Gospels. He very often speaks before he thinks. He so boldly proclaims to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. Now, I would imagine that Peter, when he said that, he had some things going on in his head, and one of those was this, as he really thought Jesus was going to commend him for that and just pour his love out on him. It probably shocked the bejeebies out of Peter because Jesus rebuked him for making that statement. Now, we know this. We know that what Jesus says actually comes true, that Peter does exactly what Jesus says he's going to do, and that he's betrays him three times after he's arrested. See, the faith of each of these disciples is about to be stretched and tested beyond comprehension. P- 
Peter, like really everyone else, really doesn't know himself near as well as he thinks he does. I will lay down my life for you. Do you understand that in Jesus' rebuke, he's saying to him that you're really not as different from Judas as you think you are? As a matter of fact, Peter, there's a sense in which you're more arrogant than he is. Because you actually believe that you're better. You know, there's an underlying thread that runs through all of this that I haven't brought up, and that is the thread of grace. Grace is what makes the difference. God did not give Judas grace. But for his own reasons and purposes, he did give it to Peter. And to the rest of these guys. Do you understand? That is the only thing that sets them apart as being different. If it were not for grace, they would have been just as bad or maybe even worse. You understand why grace is so central and so crucial to understanding the very gospel itself? That if you take grace out of the picture, you might tell people about Jesus all day long and his great love and your love and this, that, and the other, whatever. But if you don't mention grace, you have not shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with that person. We can't say why God chose to give Peter grace but not Judas. But God had his reasons. But I can clue you into something. It was not because Peter was better or gooder or more wonderful than Judas was. God chose to leave Judas where he was, and he chose to pick Peter up out of it and move him to a different spot. And the rest of these guys as well. The fact is that Peter will eventually be martyred because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He will, in fact, lay down his life for Jesus. Only after many, many years of ministry that carried him to many, many different places. He will be crucified in Rome Crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't want, he didn't feel like he was worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus did. I would imagine that Peter was a very different Peter that had been in that upper room with Jesus.
So what are we to do with all of this? One of those things is this, is there needs to be a little sense of relief. Relief that it's not based upon my own doing, my own abilities, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. God has given me grace. I'm here by grace and by grace only. And by grace and by grace only, I will remain here. You're not here because you're worthy. You're not here because you're better than anybody. As a matter of fact, there are probably people that you are far worse than in some ways. You are here simply because Jesus, in your case, has chosen to love someone that everyone else would consider to be absolutely, completely unlovable. That is grace. That is God's grace. It is the heart and soul of the gospel without which you do not have the biblical gospel. Grace, 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 always grace. That is the one and only thing that set Peter apart. And it's the only thing that sets you and I apart from Judas. So who gets the credit? God. And I do want to say this too this morning, that there's a sense in which as a Christian you are called to lay down your life for Christ. To do it constantly and continually. To be a Christian means to, 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 to actually pursue dying to sin and living more and more in Christ. I know that you love the Lord a lot, but there's always more to love. A lot more to love. Much as you love him now, nothing compared to the way you will love him when the time comes. When I do funerals, I always end them on this note, and that is this, is I understand that your wife or your husband or your mother or father or your child has passed away and, and all of that, and you miss them and you want them back and this, that, and the other. But reality is this, is where they are now and what they've experienced, if they could come back, they wouldn't do it in a zillion, trillion, billion years. Because they have experienced the glory of Christ in a way that you and I haven't.
these things are the only reason that we can look to the future with hope. This, 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 this world is hopeless, and the message that's going out there today that people think is all full of hope is absolutely a hope dead-end street. They hope and hope and hope and hope and all the wrong things, and they will let them down every single time. Our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in our own abilities. Our hope is in Him and in Him entirely. And praise be to God. For He is the righteous and the holy and loving one. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a father we have in his father.